So we're going to talk tonight about uh, deepening and developing samadhi, which is what we're doing. And many of these talks will be about deepening and developing samadhi, as that's the intent of the first um, large portion of this retreat. <clears throat> Just wanted to give a, a, a tiny bit of context about uh, samadhi and its role in our tradition. Um, during the Buddha's life, as many of you know, he lived as a prince and knew uh, sensual luxury for the first 29 years of his life and had an intuition that uh, the happiness he was experiencing wouldn't stave off uh, the growing old, developing illness, uh, and eventually dying. And wouldn't that, just having sensual happiness um, wouldn't be satisfying given the challenges of life that were inherent. So he began his spiritual quest. And if you know his story, you know that he first began by practicing as he wandered. He met several teachers who taught him the depths of samadhi that were possible. And in very deep, deep, deep samadhi, we call that jhana. So he practiced these uh, jhanas with two uh, great masters, had whole developed schools at the time. And he was quite um, proficient at it and quite quickly mastered them, but still had an intuition that he had only, through these jhanas, through these deep absorptions, had only temporarily removed himself from the challenges of life, growing old, aging, death, loss, physical pain, that comes as soon as you come out of this meditative state and you interact with the world, anything can happen. So he left the schools of uh, deep absorption and then for six years practiced extreme austerities, which was another school of thought at the time that you could, if you got so accustomed to pain, you would break your um, attachment to desire, you'd break your attachment to pleasure. So it was a way of breaking out of the bonds of having a human body and all the uh, reactions people normally have to pleasure and pain. So for six years, he tortured himself and then saw that, that wasn't getting where he wanted it to go. But it took him six years to figure that out. That, uh, so it's a pretty tough nut to crack, but he finally got to a place where he said, I can't take this any further and it's not gotten me where I want to go. So he abandoned that. Shortly after that, he became enlightened luckily, and then he went and taught his first students. <clears throat> when, he taught his, when he taught his first five students, he said, <clears throat> sensual desire cannot lead to uh, lasting happiness. So it's not of great benefit to be attached to sensual desire. But nor is uh, tormenting yourself, neither one of those lead anywhere. So he puts both of those aside, doesn't recommend either one. He doesn't say anything about samadhi in that particular list, but he doesn't condemn it. And then he tells his first five students about the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path, he's discovered, does lead to complete freedom. And samadhi ends up being one of the Eightfolds. So he takes, the, he takes what he learned earlier about these deep absorptions and puts them fairly centrally into his... Uh, recommended path of awakening. And so he rejected the sensual desire and the practice of that, the self-mortification, puts that aside. But he ends up keeping the samadhi because he knew of its benefit. 
And it's benefit of uh, developing the heart and mind so that the wisdom practices that were specific to what he wanted to teach would have a chance to flourish and flourish to the, to the degree of actually liberating. And so, as we have said a few times, uh, many of his discourses, when the topic of samadhi comes up, he encourages it, encourages developing it to the, the, the best degree that you can to give wisdom a chance to deepen. So samadhi is an a important basis for the developing of liberating wisdom. And as we wake up, the, the wisdom that we're gaining supports the development of samadhi. And he says that there's no samadhi without wisdom, and there's no real wisdom without samadhi. The two uh, are developed uh, side by each, as we say in Rhode Island, <laughs> you know, together in parallel, side by each. So um, he kept it, and he actually kept it. It seems that what he learned from those first two teachers, he took uh, completely in the structure of that, the whole development of that. He probably left aside the belief that they might have had that samadhi was completely liberating. So that part he left aside, but the actual training of it and the developing of it and the stages of developing deeper and deeper states of concentration um, he seemed to have kept that in its structure and then would work to people who had come to him from those different schools and be able to teach them to full liberation because they would have had developed samadhi to some degree in the schools that they were in at the time. So he kept it and he kept it in place as an important development for the liberating insights that uh, he had and he taught um, and said that they're uh, our capacity to liberate is dependent upon our ability to steady our minds and not to have so much mental turbulence. It's very hard for the wisdom that we're trying to liberate ourselves by to uh, deepen to the place where we are finally free of the underlying habits and patterns we have. So samadhi is crucial for that. Samadhi helps develop liberating wisdom. And the liberating wisdom that we get degree by degree helps us deepen samadhi. We've said that uh, one way of thinking about samadhi is that the hindrances go into dormancy. So they're not uprooted forever, but we're learning how to actually invite our attention, invite our heart and our mind to meet, meet not as restless, not as sleepy, not as perplexed, not as irritated, and not as craving for pleasure. And so as those begin to soften, and those begin to quiet, our mind becomes uh, quite momentarily free of that inter internal turmoil. And so the development of samadhi can give us a taste of what our heart and mind is like when it's free, at least temporarily, of these underlying disturbances long before we're finally liberated, we can taste a heart and mind that's not troubled, that's not uh, aggravated. Um, and in, in that uh, restless state that many of us find us ourselves in daily life. When the hindrances <clears throat> go into dormancy, one of the best ways to do that is the way that we're practicing on, on this sort of very still, quiet focus and as Adrian was saying, we developed these five jhana factors, 
the best way to do that is in supportive conditions. So being quiet, finding a neutral to pleasant place to rest our attention, letting it gather, letting it collect. Then as these five jhana factors become stronger, then when we go engage the world, we find that we actually still have an ability to be fairly concentrated and gathered, even in more complex and more stimulating environments. When I first started uh, practicing uh, this form of meditation, usually Vipassana, but Vipassana, as we do it, we're developing concentration and insight at the same time. I would go from silent meditation retreats like this into working in crisis shelters uh, for teenagers when I did my 20s. And my ability to be present, even in hyper-stimulating environments, was so strong. I began to see, like, this is not just about seclusion away from the world. That's a temporary training that's quite powerful. But then actually made me much more productive to be in the world and to actually be engaged. So this development of samadhi, um, the way we're doing it, is to strengthen these five jhana factors. And this is sort of the best way to do it. But it's not to end up taking a stance against the world, a stance against the stimulation of the world. In fact, we become more productive as our minds are freer of the hindrances, can be more gathered, more whole, more collected. Then as we engage with the world, we're engaging with it in a way that actually is inspiring. We can be present, we can be wise, we're not as triggered by the world. There's a type of internal stability that's not from repression, by just going numb and stuffing things down. We find that a lot of our uh, internal turbulence is in dormancy. And so as this gets stronger, those things are harder and harder to awaken, harder to awaken your anger or your fear or obsessions, even in challenging circumstances. So it begins to show us early on what the promise of this path is when we get to know samadhi, get to know these jhana factors, when they begin to be accessed in meditation, but then when we begin to find them out in daily life as well. And that's where they support us in daily life and they support us in having greater insight into the truths of the world, the truths of our lives. We can be steady enough to see things more clearly. And that's, what, that's what's ultimately liberating, not to be free momentarily on retreat, but free in all contexts. And that's where samadhi begins to um, give us a chance to wake up more deeply in everyday life and see things more clearly. In some ways, um, developing samadhi <clears throat> is skillful in developing vipassana wisdom, uh, vipassana insights. And the analogy is like giving, um, you see a, a child, maybe a toddler, um, grab a fork and just starting to get a little interested in having this fork in their hand. And then you know all the damage that this person could do, this little toddler could do with a fork, so you dangle your keys in front of the, to the toddler and the toddler puts down the fork and takes up the keys. And then you can dangle something else that's better than the keys and you can keep substituting something <laughs> less dangerous. And so you just keep having the mind uh, go from less and less dangerous things into more and more productive things. So just telling people, let go of it all and you'll be okay is quite a big ask. But if you say, let go of the turbulent um, attachments to the world and get to know this sort of soothing um, seclusion of heart and mind in just a simple practice of breathing. 
And there's a lot of letting go that has to happen as you build your relationship to something simple like the breath or body sensations or sounds or loving kindness, whatever your practice of gathering your attention is. And that's the same direction of letting go that we take even further when we go into the wisdom trainings. But so much has to be developed in even letting go of our normal attachments to worldly experiences, relationships, uh, responsibilities, pleasures, um, our strategies in daily life. And you're rewarding yourself with at least samadhi, which is a pleasant abiding in simple experiences. Then from there, we further ask ourselves to uh, develop a type of wisdom that's not even caught or preferencing uh, samadhi. So it's a skillful means to head us in the right direction. But it, it passes through something pleasant, which is really skillful. It's, uh, it's kind of nice that this path has um, a pleasurable way to liberate yourself. And I didn't know that when I was uh, uh, practicing when I was younger. I thought it was a lot about hardship and eventually breaking through and finding that relieving, but that it seemed like there was a lot of hardship early on. And so when I learned about um, this path of developing samadhi, um, I was quite shocked that in our Theravadan tradition, there's room for joy and there's room for pleasure and that it's not a bad sign. You're not um, a weak practitioner if you're developing this type of internal uh, calm. And many of us will, will get to know these practices in the opposite direction that they're usually taught. Um, over in traditionally Theravadan countries, people will first learn about uh, the practice of sila, making sure that they had a sort of moral attunement to their environment. And then they'll learn these samatha techniques to help uh, quiet the mind. They'll learn loving kindness, mindfulness of breathing towards soothing their minds. And that's what uh, ordinary lay people will do even in monasteries. And then at some point, if they can actually stabilize their mind, they might have been taught vipassana. And that has turned around in the last 150 years by an interesting um, development. When the British were colonizing uh, India, Sri Lanka, Burma, um, and starting to have an impact on the local Burmese culture and having an impact on Thai culture and Sri Lankan culture, <clears throat> there was some fear that um, if the lay people didn't know the true treasures of their tradition, then they wouldn't understand what they were losing if they turned and took up interest in another culture and let the other culture become more dominant. So rather than just teaching lay people about these calming techniques, they began to give them earlier access to the Vipassana insights and the trainings that we're much more accustomed to, the mindfulness of breathing and becoming aware of the changing nature of experience and they found that people uh, could have the direct experience themselves, lay people, early on without having to develop deep absorptions before they could get, have access to these wisdom trainings. So that was a development of the last 150 years, which is why we uh, can access um, week-long trainings, 10-day uh, trainings in Vipassana. That just wasn't done for a long time, for hundreds of years, if not longer. Usually people would develop in the five precepts, maybe then the eight precepts, learning how to calm their minds. And then maybe if they were very dedicated, um, they would be 
shown the wisdom practices that we'll do uh, towards the second half of this retreat. So we've gotten it, we, we've gotten it very, what's become the tradition in these countries, but it's a little bit um, flipped. Often we'll have insight, uh, practice the wisdom traditions, the wisdom practices. After a while we'll, we'll learn that there's an importance to developing samadhi, and then we'll develop it. And we might have this realize like, oh, I wish I'd actually known this first. I wish I'd actually known how to quiet my mind before I was asked to do the Vipassana practice. I wish I knew that there was a role for gladdening the mind, for contentment, for working skillfully with my mind rather than just sitting in the middle of it and letting it bump around until it finally calmed down. Oh, there's actually a skillful way to calm it down. And it fits some of the traditional teachings too about the progression of developing meditation towards liberation, learning how to just calm yourself before you try for deeper uh, insight, deeper liberating insight. So I'm not sure how many of you are having that particular awakening here, like, oh, now that I'm learning about it, I wish I had known this earlier. This is really useful to know how to calm myself down and not necessarily being taught this for as many days on a normal mindfulness or Vipassana retreat, but then learning the usefulness of it. I thought I would read <clears throat> one of the uh, classic mindfulness texts, Mindfulness of Breathing. And so you can see this progression and it might make more sense if you read this now, how we progress through stages of samadhi and developing samadhi um, before we get into the more classic uh, practices of insight. So in this sutta, the mindfulness of breathing, the Anapanasati Sutta, there are these 16 steps of development. And the first 12 of them are, can be seen as the development of samadhi, the useful development of samadhi before the last four of the 16 steps, um, which are more about insight. So the first step is knowing <clears throat> whether your breathing in and out is long. And the second step is just knowing whether your breathing in and out is short of these two. So just becoming familiar, more and more familiar with the breath that you're having moment by moment. So that's like the vitaka vichara that we were describing yesterday, employing these two jhana factors, connecting to your breath and sustaining it throughout an entire breath you get to know whether you're having a particularly long breath or a particularly short breath. So as uh, Adrian was saying yesterday, here we have long breath, short breath. Knowing that applies these first two of the five jhana factors, vitaka, vichara, the application of attention and the sustaining of attention on a particular object. Enough so that you get some, um, not just I know I'm breathing, but do I know the qualities of my breath? starting to deepen an intimacy with your breath moment by moment. And the third training is becoming sensitive to the entire body. So while you're breathing in and breathing out, becoming sensitive to the entire body. And there are different schools of thought about this. And I, it's not so important that we get it right here. But one of them is now that you're breathing in and out and you've developed some attention to know that, whether you're having a long breath or a short breath, Becoming aware maybe of your physical body, that's one interpretation. And just seeing what state is my body in. And then the fourth step is calming your body. 
So first we become aware of what's happening and then we calm it. That's an interesting development because rather than going right for calming it, calm your body, first you allow an intimacy with the way that your body is before you learn to calm it. That way we're not just repressing the sensations in our body. Breathing in, breathing out, I become aware of qualities of my breath. And the third step, I become aware of what's happening in my body. And then I learn to calm my body down. By being intimate with it, I invite it to be more uh, relaxed, more at ease, find a posture that works for me, kind of standing if I need to, but learning a way to calm the body. That's the first four steps of the development of mindfulness of breathing. The next four steps, again, turn towards the development of these jhana factors. So the fifth step of these 16 steps is becoming sensitive to rapture. And that's the translation of this third jhanic factor, piti. So there's becoming sensitive to what they're calling rapture. We all might use different English words to translate uh, piti and what the experience of piti is. And so rapture is one of them and people might feel that that kind of fits in how they would talk about the awakening of this factor of piti. I find that um, piti, there's body piti, where my body feels a little lighter, a little more bubbly. I can feel more tingling in the body or more warmth. Sometimes I just feel a better sense of integration, a better sense of circulation in my body. I'm sitting here, my body's quite comfortable. And it feels sort of open. And that opening reveals a lot more subtle sensations. And that, uh, that, that opening and the subtle sensations is a, ki- a type of piti in the body. You can feel tingling in the body, a sense of warmth, a sense of lightness. That's an arising of piti. Or you can start having stronger sensations in the body and you can feel uh, very light in the body. Or sometimes the energy that's released in the body is, is a little bit more graphic. You can feel vibrations in the body. That's, the, that's piti in the body. So becoming sensitive and aware, where is there PT in my body? Is there PT in my body? And can I feel it? There's also PT in the mind, rapture in the mind. My experience of PT in the mind, it's very much what happens when I take the first few sips of a caffeinated drink. <laughs> and my mind goes from ordinary, a little sluggish, to extra special. <laughs> So when there's PT in the mind, my mind becomes very bubbly, creative. Uh, it like a sort of a subtle, sly humor comes in. Um, I can understand things at greater complexity. Um, I'm enjoying the details. So it's kind of a delighted mind. And often I'll use the word delight. Delight of the mind, delight in the body. That's really, for me, I would use those English words for PT. So here it's interesting, the word when we're developing mindfulness of breathing, it says becoming sensitive to PT, not bringing it forward, not causing it, but becoming sensitive to it. So once we can calm our bodies, calm ourselves, we can then begin looking for where is there delight? Where is there this sort of lightness of mind, lightness of body? And you might feel like, okay, my body's feeling kind of normal, but over here in my shoulder, it does feel warm, it feels tingling, there's something kind of light happening here. So becoming aware of that and letting your attention go there 
and enjoy the fact that your body feels healthy there and there's some tingling. And that tends to allow PT to come in other parts of your body. It's a bit of a passive process. You can't make it happen, but you can invite it. You can enjoy it. Without clinging to it, you can enjoy the PT that's arising in your body. You can enjoy the PT that's arising in your mind. The fact that your mind is feeling lighter, it's feeling more bubbly, it's feeling inspired. Some ways that you can actually welcome PT sometimes is reflecting on things that bring you the sense of joy. And then that joy, joyful mind becomes a mind uh, more imbued with this delight, with this um, rapture, you might call it. So after calming the body, becoming sensitive to PT, where it is, even if it's subtle, getting to know it, becoming more familiar with it. The next one is um, becoming sensitive to sukha. So we become sensitive to this PT, this bubbliness, but can you become sensitive to your own sense of contentment, your own sense of ease, your own sense of well-being? physically, emotionally, mentally. See if you can tune into that. While you're there, enjoying a breath coming in, coming out, you've calmed your body, you arouse some energy and maybe it feels delightful for a moment to be breathing. Can you tune into a type of well-being that's present, a type of uh, calmness, a type of happiness, a type of fulfillment, even there while you're sitting doing something as simple as breathing? You might know moments that are fulfilling with something as simple as breathing. That fulfillment is an, is an important turning in practice, is an important turning in your life. So not, not to be overlooked, that rather than happiness and fulfillment coming through a sense door or through many sense doors, you're actually starting to have happiness and well-being just because you're breathing. And so you've lowered the bar of deep contentment to breathing. And as that begins to open more and more, it begins to shift our relationship to what we have been dependent upon before. I'm happy when I'm with my friends, I'm eating chocolate, I see the ocean. Certain experiences come through one of the sense doors and that buoys us up. And then without those experiences, we're kind of at a loss to be happy. It's sort of like, well, I'm looking forward to some other experience when I can be happy and content. When you start to know even moments of contentment that are not coming through a sense door, but they're because you're resting with your breath and the breath is really not producing all the pleasure, it's that your mind is finally content. Knowing sukha that's come through resting and being not haggard by all the stimulation of life, it's a, it's a, it's a turning. And so you don't want to overlook that. You want to see, well, for those five breaths, for those 10 breaths, for that one breath, for a minute, for 10 minutes, however long, I was actually quite content. And you might be so content that you don't stop to notice it. So yeah, it was nice, I was content. It's like, no, 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 that's profound, especially given the assault from this contemporary culture we have about all the ways to have pleasure through buying and stimulation and all that you had a radical act of being content just because you were breathing. That's very liberating. It's a very liberating and maybe overlooked development in your practice. 
And then, you know, a minute later, it's like, well, it wasn't that great, because now look at me, eh? I'm obsessed about lunch, and I'm not happy, and it didn't last that long. Like, okay, things progressed. It was a moment. But not to undermine it, because those moments actually begin to um, go deeper and come more often, and they last a little longer. It's contentment born from within. That means we're not as dependent upon external experiences for our happiness. We can free ourselves from them and we can free them from us. <laughs> I'm freeing my friends from making me happy. I just, oh wow, you're happy, this is nice. Versus you make me happy. You know, chocolate, make me happy. It's just chocolate, it gets to be itself. Not part of my strategy for happiness. <laughs> what a relief for both of us. <laughs> for us and for me and the chocolate. <clears throat> so in these classic 16 steps, taking us slowly through the development of mindfulness of breathing, we're actually passing through the very territory of developing samadhi. And if you didn't know that when we read through this, it wouldn't be as obvious. But hopefully by describing this and the fact that we've been exposed to these five jhana factors since last night, or maybe you knew them before, then when you walk through these very classic 16 steps, you can see, oh, wait a second, this is actually kind of doable. I sit here, I get to be familiar with my breath, become aware of my body, see if I can actually relax my body, give it a little more sense of calm, become aware of when my mind's actually feeling happy in this sort of delighted way. I can become aware of my mind's feeling this contentment, but it's not really born of anything. It's just, I'm breathing. This is doable. And you've all experienced this. So just take note that you have experienced it. It's not all hindrances and it's not all backache. That as you sit here, this is what you're cultivating. And it, be and it becomes more accessible over time. So the fifth step is becoming aware of piti. The sixth step is becoming aware of sukha. The um, seventh step is becoming aware of mental activity, the type of movements of mind. Just becoming aware. I'm sitting here happy, I'm with my breath, but I'm still you know, pondering winning the lottery and I'm still going back and remembering things I didn't do that I wished I had done, and still planning something. So the mind is still a little bit active even though it's happy. I mean, you become aware, my mind's moving, there's a lot of motion. Again, we don't go right to calming it and stopping it. We've become aware this is what's happening while I'm practicing. There's this motion of mind. Then you learn to calm the motions of mind, these habitual patterns of mind, letting them become calm. And that takes us through the eighth step of the first 16. The next steps are also headed towards samadhi, going into them. We become sensitive to the mind itself. And this might, I, I don't want to lose, lose you here if this is not that accessible, but it's sort of like if we were having a party in this room. <clears throat> you'd see the party and you'd ask people to quiet down. But then you could become aware of the room itself and see, is there a lot of turbulence in the room? So there's the activity in the room, but then you see the overall space in the room Let's calm this whole thing down. Might turn the music down, might turn off some of the things that are blowing confetti around. It's like, let's calm this whole room down. 
So one is we take, we look at mental activity and we calm it down. Next one, we start looking at just the space of the mind, the space of the heart. We invite that to be a little more calm. Let that come to a type of stillness, a type of ease, a type of natural quietness of mind. But first again, we become sensitive to it and then we learn to calm it. So that's the third time that first we become aware of something and then invite it to be calm. We do it for the body. We invite, we do it for the mental activity, aware of it and then calming it. And then the space of the heart and the mind itself and seeing if that spaciousness inside has turbulence in it and movement or whether it can come to stillness. It can come to a more quiet, From that final quieting of the mind, we can then steady our attention, which is this um, 11th step. While breathing in and out, I steady my mind. And upon steadying the mind, you then taste the fact that the mind is very free, which is the 12th step in these 16 steps. Noticing that your mind is very steady, it's not drawn to fantasies, it's not got irritations, the mind is quite happy, quite content, quite still, it's quite focused. And from that, it's actually tasting a very deep flow of freedom in the moments that that's happening. It's not that caught up, it's not even near being caught up with the world. It's temporarily weightless and free in relationship to all the worldly responsibilities and identities. From there, we go through four more steps. I'm going to talk about them later. One of us might talk about them later. And that's really from there, from that sense of being freed from your bonded relationship to the world, you can then begin practicing classical insight meditations. But of these first 12 steps of the classical 16 involved with progressing through the development of mindfulness of breathing, the first 12 of them are uh, related to deepening samadhi and what that entails. So this is the very territory that you're all passing through. And if you're not doing necessarily mindfulness of breathing, but you're doing mindfulness of sound or you're doing mindfulness of loving kindness, you're heading in the same direction. You're heading the same direction of gathering your attention, calming the body, calming the mental activity, calming the space of the mind around the feeling of loving kindness, for example, or around sound but uh, many of us are doing breath as a way of guiding us in this direction. So <clears throat> Adrian talked about the five jhana factors. There's getting to know them, letting them arise together in a, a strong and coordinated way. And when the, the moment you're in has the taste of these five jhana factors and you can taste them, and they feel pretty strong and they're rising together, that starts to taste like what we might call a secluded mind or an absorbed mind. So the, the first taste of that, you might feel that you're, you're steering your attention deliberately in one direction, you're sustaining it there, that would be vitaka and vichara. There's a sense of interest, so what you're seeing draws you in because it's interesting. The movement of the breath can be interesting when the mind's in the right place. Like this is the very thing keeping me alive, this movement of breath. It's very interesting. 
what I feel as it comes in, the warm, the cool, the play of breath, can bring up this sense of piti. And it can be very satisfying and contenting, so you don't feel like you have to go elsewhere to feel satisfied or content or well, just the act of breathing. And then there's this experience of ekagata, which Adrian described last night. It's one of the, the it's of the five factors, it's the, the last one becomes strong. And so I was asked this morning, how does uh, Wichara and, and Ikagata, how, do, how are they different? So of the, because Wichara is sustaining your attention with something. And when Ikagata is strong, the mind likes being in one place. The difference is that Wichara is that you're, in, you're still intending the mind to be with something. If you didn't intend it, it might wander. It might visit the breath, but easily wander. So you're saying, no, 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 let's stay with this breath and really develop it. So there's an intention to stay. When ikagata is not very strong, the mind is willing to stay in one place, but not with any type of strength. When you feel this one jhana factor, the, the fifth one, ekagata, ek means one and agata, I think means frame or point, a resting place or seat, so the one-seatedness of the mind. You'll know this factor <clears throat> because we'll ring the bell and it will be lunchtime and you won't want to move. And in fact, you start to think, whoa, I'm not moving at all. I feel kind of like rested, very rooted in this one frame. I just want to be breathing. You might even get concerned, like, um, Am I ever going to get up from here? And oh, and they actually have to kind of change directions. So rather than putting effort into sustaining yourself with the breath, the mind is so enjoying resting there that you actually have to intend for the mind to go elsewhere. That's an example of when this one factor starts to be strong. There's a resting quality. It's almost like a, a ball rolling on a flat ground and then it comes to a little divot and it rolls there and it stays there, and it just likes to stay there. And you can tilt the, the board around, the ball will stay in one place, and it's actually hard to get it out of that place. That's when this factor, this jhana factor of ekagata, starts to be um, pronounced. And then you don't need as much intention to stay with the breath. So just to know these five and how they're distinct. <clears throat> And if you read up on the literature of developing samadhi, you get introduced to these five jhana factors. You're told to cultivate them, have them develop strong. And then they say, um, it goes on, almost the next paragraph is, now that you have mastered deeply absorbing yourself, here's where we go from there. And <clears throat> most of us in the monastery, when I was practicing, we were like, did somebody tear a page out of this book? Because <laughs> I'm doing this, and then they sort of talk about these absorptions and the sort of like, that looks phenomenal, but so far from my experience. And so we're parsing these little phrases and like wondering this last paragraph, like what's in there? Because between that and finally secluding my mind is actually a pretty big Grand Canyon of things to pass through. And they're not talked about that much. What's happening that, in that time is really just deepening with patience and watching these five jhana factors become stronger and watching the hindrances go into abeyance or go into dormancy 
And for many of us, that just takes time and patience. And so there isn't a missing page, isn't a missing chapter of the book, except the chapter to be like, keep going, <laughs> keep going, you're doing great. And it could be a whole, like, a whole book just saying that between these are the five jhana factors and this is what it's like when your mind is finally secluded with no hindrances. Like, just keep, you're doing great, you're doing great. <laughs> wow, here you're on page 57, you must be doing great if you read this far. You so deserve this. It's, Coming your way, that's great. So I was practicing with this great teacher, um, Paok Sayadaw, who's one of the, the most renowned teachers of deep absorption. Um, he always had a sparkle in his eye when I would come in. Never without a sparkle, never without a smile. I just, he uh, was definitely lit from within. And he never tired of hearing of my slow progress. <laughs> And he was always encouraging. And he always had some little, little thing, like, you can do it. Um, so I appreciated that about him. Um, he would always set the bar a little too high. He'd always like put what he wanted to see, what he was hoping for me, with beyond my reach, and so I'd be a little discouraging. But he was always upbeat and uh, showing signs of success. And he was encouraging me. But um, I was just really, slowly over time, the hindrances were giving ground. And the experience of just breathing became so satisfying that my mind wasn't wandering as much. So that was happening over time, but it took, it took some time to develop that. And so there isn't really a lot to do except to, you know, maybe learn a little bit about a particular way your mind behaves and a good way to work with that. So it's not that there's no skill in that, but that's a lot of what we're doing is um, learning to satisfy ourselves with the breath, letting our whole mentality shift around pleasure from experiences to pleasure in the way that your mind is balanced and then finding that so satisfying that you stop, you start uh, losing the distraction of trying to have your attention go elsewhere. Fewer and fewer things are really worth it compared to the happiness contentment you get from just simply breathing. Another thing that happens along the way <clears throat> is the experience of purification. And <clears throat> that can be startling if you have this linear view of practice slowly getting deeper and deeper and deeper, and then suddenly you're thrown into turbulence and you don't know why. And really that's the experience of purification. We're often purifying as we go but every now and then something big releases that's been trapped in our psyche for uh, a long time. And during that time, rather than being able to be satisfied with the breath, you find that there's a lot of emotion, a lot of memory comes up, a lot of physical stuff comes up in the body. And it feels like practice has gone haywire for that hour, that day, that week, that month, um, if it's a long one, a long purification. But you actually want that stuff out of you. And so once we mature in our relationships with the path, if our path heads through a purification, in hindsight, you'll be grateful for it. And when you, in hindsight, are grateful for enough of your purifications, you can start to be grateful for it while it's happening. Um, very rarely do it like, oh good, here comes purification. <clears throat> but it's like, okay, if we're going in this direction, the last 3,000 times I was grateful, so let's just have some faith and let this purification roll through and find yourself 
unbearably irritated and impatient and can't stand this breath. And oh, like, God, there's got to be another path than this one. And you're just turbulently in the five hindrances of doubt and anger, frustration. One time I was doing a three-month loving-kindness concentration retreat. I was sort of steadily going down, but I would hit these, these releases of purification. And one time, two and a half months into a three-month retreat, I was sitting down and a certain teacher walked in to give a talk and the way that they gave the talk was just, I was like, I can't take one of their talks right now. I was practicing loving kindness for two and a half months. It's like, ah, no, not this person. Oh. I was like, oh, God, two and a half months in, I still have this like preferences and judgments. And I was like, so embarrassed by it. Like, I can't, I can't take it. So as everybody else was sitting down for the talk, I bowed and kind of walked out the back. And it was December in Massachusetts, where it was very cold, two feet of ice, two feet of snowy ice on the ground. So I put on my heaviest coat and wrapped myself up. Every little piece of flesh had to be covered. And I went out walking. It just got worse and worse and worse. Like two and a half months of loving kindness, and I can't stand it. I can't stand anybody on the retreat. And I'm so, like, what's happening to me? I'm such a failure. It's like, no, I'm not the failure. They're the failure. <laughs> I was practicing with everything I got. They must not have taught me the right way because here I am out in the cold alone on a, on a cold night. And then they start laughing. It's one of those Dharma talks that just everybody, everything is working. Every joke is just cackling. The room is, I can hear all this laughter. I'm so much more cold and lonely out there practicing loving kindness. Like, may you be happy. <laughs> Ah, may I be happy. It's like, ah, I hate myself and I hate them. It's like, I'm so broken. I'm so worthless. And I was like, oh, God, this is horrible. Like, this is how this retreat's going to end. It's going to, two and a half months in, I'm going to just be loathing people and myself and everything. And then my mind knows no limits. At that time, the purification was just really disgorging all this packed down resentment that I'd been trying hard not to feel because it was ugly and was kind of, I didn't like it and didn't have space for it. But finally I had the strength. When you're purifying, it means you have the strength to purify. And in hindsight, we, we know that. But while it's happening, the firsthand experience is quite brutal. So all this is happening and they're all laughing and I'm feeling more lonely and more cut off from the community and it's validating all of my high school fears. And it's just, it's just, it only was getting worse. And this plane was flying overhead like a, red eye from Boston to the West Coast and was flying over. And I was like, <clears throat> I wonder if that's one of those Russian bombers. <laughs> I wonder if this is like the beginning of World War Three. Yeah, maybe that would be the, it's like, I, yeah, if it dropped a bomb right now, they'd all be laughing and I'd be the only survivor. So my mind's producing this, but there's another part of me inside that's mortified. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe the violence coming out of this mind. I've been training it for two and a half months in loving kindness. Now it's wishing everybody would be... And it's loving it. It's like, you're really loving this. I'm mortified. And then I saw the rubble in my imagination. And then this really embarrassing, but like the, the depth of this thing came out of me. And I imagine myself going through the rubble. And if any two bricks were still connected, I would break them apart. <laughs> and then this very kind of dramatic thing said, yes, let no two bricks be joined. <laughs> and I didn't know how bad it was going to get, but that was the pinnacle moment of my purification. Let no two bricks be joined. And it was the summation of 
all my hatred towards all the things that had ever disappointed me and all the places I had ever failed and all the people I felt had failed me. And, and it just finally like, bleh. And then it was out. And I sat there trembling and it was out of me. This I'd finally gotten as angry and as hostile as I needed to get in that moment. And then it was out. And in that space, there was so much more tenderness, so much more humility, for sure. And I just rested in this space afterwards. And I was like, I'm actually so grateful. These teachers must get this all the time. <laughs> People storming into their, like, right, what are you teaching me? <laughs> Going through their purifications and kind of losing it a bit. And I was you know, wishing them to be blown apart and, and hating the whole operation and loathing myself and was finally out and it's finally purified out. In that space, my mind got really, really quiet and really like tender, newborn, got very quiet, very, very quiet. And I listened to like the quiet of a winter night in um, Massachusetts when all the leaves are off the trees and it can, the, the air is really cold. The quietness, the tenderness, the yearning of my heart to kind of be in the room where everybody was laughing, all this forgiveness for them, for myself. I'd never felt that, even in the two months I'd been there. So on the other side of this purification came all this room for new uh, love and appreciation and respect and humility and all these beautiful qualities began pouring through. And not every purification it will, is like that but it showed me what purifications can be like, that they can actually be in the middle of this beautiful loving kindness retreat, all this hatred was coming up, but it came up to come out. And when it was out, the space afterwards could settle. And there was something that had been lodged in me for a long time that I no longer had to manage because of the purification cycle that I went through. This is actually not uncommon on these long retreats that we find ourselves going through a hard time. We don't know why but it's a type of purification. Your psyche is letting go of something and it doesn't go quietly out the side door. It comes up, displays itself, and then hopefully it's cleanly released. And in its space, there's more openness, more humility, more tenderness. And then there's more orientation towards the Dharma in that space. Um, so while I don't wish them on anybody, I do wish the outcome on everybody which is the purification of heart and mind. And what I wish on you is little ones, many, many little ones that don't take you to that extreme. But if you have a big one coming, I wish you the fortitude to see it through and to feel the relief on the other side. And I wish the teachers that are working with you patience <laughs> while that might be happening. There's an analogy <clears throat> the Buddha gave of how purifying the mind is like purifying gold. And so you go to a place where there's a lot of gold in the ground, but it's mixed with a lot of dirt and sand and other things. You don't just sort of find a big, huge thing of gold. It's usually mixed in with more things. So again, you go where there's a lot of it, but you still have to purify it. And you gather up that dirt, getting the gold together, and you put it in water and you shake it and agitate it. The gold is heavier, so it actually begins to drop down. And what's more visible is the other things besides the gold, the dirt the sand, and that floats up. But because it's separated, you can skim that off, and there's more gold in what's remaining. And you begin to shake and agitate that, and wash that, 
And again, the gold breaks apart in the dirt, settles, and the stuff that's on the top is what you clear away. And once you clear it away, you can see more of this purified gold underneath. Then you take that gold and you put it in a hot crucible and you really heat it up. And again, the gold is heavier, so it melts and drops down. And what's on the surface is more of the impurities. But because they've been separated, you can clean them out. And finally, you have pure gold on the bottom. So that's a lot of what the purification process is between learning about the jhana factors, developing them, and slowly over time purifying your heart and mind through many, many little steps, or maybe through a couple of big, um, very intense journeys through hatred or grief or uh, restlessness while that's happening. But really that stuff is floating up and the beauty of your mind is settling deeper down into you. And you'll know that because when those things pass, what's left over is a much more embodied sense of peace, contentment, liberation, freedom, kindness, patience. These beautiful qualities are actually settling down like the gold, they're heavier in a way. So they settle down into us and more of the impurities that have been mixed up there over time float up and then out. And as they pass, we're left with the underlying beautiful qualities. So that analogy of purifying the gold is uh, often what we're doing between our first tastes of being with the breath, learning about these five jhana factors, and what it's like when we start to really know seclusion, when we really can seclude our mind temporarily with the breath, find that very fulfilling, and then go to engage the world with a mind that can be fulfilled by the breath. Imagine your life. If, if I'm breathing, I'm deeply content. Then on top of that, there's life. So everything is above, because you'll probably be breathing <laughs> through most of your day. So if that already was what was, you're drawing your contentment because you were breathing, then the rest of life is you know, challenges or interesting or rewarding on top of that, but you still are drawing your contentment not from the experiences of life, but because you have a heartbeat, because you have a breath. And that's very liberating. And there's deeper liberations than that, but we're going to pass through that experience as we develop concentration, as we develop samadhi. We'll know a mind that doesn't is no longer addicted to or attached to or overly coupled your happiness to certain experiences and then leaves you vulnerable when you don't have those experiences, there's a happiness that comes up from within. And that's in the description of these absorptions when the Buddha was describing what it's like when we have these uh, seclusions of mind. You've all known them. You've all tasted them already. It's just that they go deeper they last a little longer and they're easier to get to over time. One way he described what it's like to be with the breath in a fairly absorbed way is that <clears throat> it's like a, uh, a lake surrounded by hills and mountains so that none of the water of the lake flows out. And it's fed by rain from the top and it's fed by a spring from underneath, but it doesn't flow out. And so this is what happens when piti and delight begins to bubble up within us. It's a joy from within. It's not a joy because there's brownies from the outside or there's something sweet from the outside. It's a piti bubbling up from the inside. And that's very nourishing to have that. 
But the image is of uh, a lake that doesn't have rivers leaving it. So you don't want the pitta to bubble out and then spill into plans or creativity or um, activity. When I, when I was getting these PT eruptions when I was um, practicing in Burma, I would be overcome with designing the perfect um, solar-based retreat centers. <laughs> and here they are. I didn't have to do it, thank God. But um, I couldn't stop myself. I would was, I was start like, planning these um, retreat centers all over the world that were environmentally balanced. And I was so excited. The PT, I couldn't contain it. So it would go up and I'd be just filled with these fantasies. And I had to learn over time to relax and let the mountains hold this lake full of PT so that the PT stayed within, the joy stayed within. It didn't go into an activity. It just was a part of what was cleansing myself to hold my own PT. Another image, which is more about the sukha factor, when that begins to open, he described it as uh, lotuses that are growing in these ponds before they break the surface and bloom and then feel the wind and the current and insects up on the top. They're sitting there in the water, usually warm water, and they haven't fully bloomed yet into life's activity, but they're sitting there, weightless in the water. When you're there with your breath and you're finding it a possibility of being content with the breath, and you start to relax into it, thoughts become a little more distant for those moments, however long they are. His image of that is like being this lotus full of possibility, but it's just floating weightless in the water where it's quiet. And maybe there's a little current in the water where it sway back and forth, but it's just being held kind of weightless underwater in its own kind of contentment ready at one point to bloom and to surface and to release all that beauty, but for a moment it's just still ripening underwater. For us, <clears throat> when you're doing this practice, to take um, enjoyment of the breath, to find it soothing and nourishing and fulfilling, to let ourselves be simple, can easily contented with a breath, easily contented with simple experiences, and welcoming ourselves in that direction. You can't force it, but we're welcoming ourselves in that direction, liberating ourselves from our attachments and then the dramas that come with our attachments to the outside world. You still get to have all those relationships. You still get to work a job. You still get to do many beautiful things, but your happiness isn't um, dependent upon them. So you've liberated the world and yourself from that type of burden uh, that your happiness needs to come from the outside, then you can begin to participate with the outside world as a free being. And you allow others the freedom that they don't have to please you. They don't have to make you happy. And they're liberated as well. Most people prefer that, both sides of that equation. And that's what happens as we uh, begin to find this happiness, this well-being, this contentment with something as simple as breathing. And that this is um, <clears throat> not a side project on this path of awakening, but it's actually quite central. It's as central as mindfulness is, the development of this type of inner contentment, inner well-being, and intimacy with the world that comes through mindfulness and the development of that. But for a time, learning to develop your own 
type of contentment from something as simple as breathing. So with that said, why don't we turn towards the practice of this? I invite you just for a moment even <clears throat> to find a posture that's comfortable. <clears throat> and most of us can't sustain it yet for very long. And there might be a limit to how long we can sustain it. But do know, do know for yourself that there are moments of contentment, of fulfillment, with something as simple as breathing. And whether you know that one breath, you've known that in several breaths, you know that many times in a day or just a few, do know that because it challenges beliefs in the mind that our happiness is far away in some other time through some other activity. It's actually, no, it can actually happen just with just as we breathe. That can be fulfilling. So with that as a promise, maybe as an invitation as I become quiet here before I ring the bell, I invite you to know as many breaths as you can, gently and patiently, and seeing the type of contentment that's possible with something as simple as breathing. And please enjoy that exploration. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.